I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to a uh, another episode. I'm very pleased to have the guest uh, that we have today. Not only uh, do I look up to uh, this guest and has been someone who I've uh, leaned on numerous times in my career, consider a good friend as well. We have a gentleman by the name of Jay Kellerman. Jay is uh, one of the leading uh, mining lawyers uh, in the world, as evidenced by numerous awards that I've uh, I've looked up on you, Jay. Jay was managing partner of Steichman Elliott's uh, Toronto office for, for a number of years, which is going to be very interesting uh, to learn about that experience. So Jay, welcome and thank, thank you very much uh, for, for being here. So Jay, I, I always like to get this conversation started kind of, you know, prior to what I know you as. You know, for, for those who don't know you, maybe we could start a little bit earlier and talk me through you know, how you got into law? What was that decision-making process? What, what did your early life look like? So I grew up in Windsor and stayed, unlike many people, when I, when I finished high school, I stayed in Windsor and I enrolled in the, in the business school at the University of Windsor. And my thought then was focused on business and accounting and took all of the accounting courses and figured that that from a career path perspective would be to on the accounting and finance side and primarily accounting i applied as you could then do after two years of undergrad to go to law school and i applied i did the lsat i probably have the distinction of the lowest all-time lsat <laughs> score ever to get into law school and somehow, mind you, that's actually probably a good indication of future success. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, and got in. It was the only law school I had applied to. I hadn't really thought about it much. Uh, while my father is a lawyer, he never really pushed law, but was always intrigued. And, and I should say, even when I went to law school, my thinking was still I would do accounting finance and have a legal background. And here I could get a legal background. And and indeed, during the first and second year law schools, after the term ended, I went back over the, you know, the intercession summer school and chipped away to get my uh, further business school credits. And I think at this point, not that I ever went back and looked, I'm probably a couple shy still. And maybe that's something uh, post Eichmann Elliott to go finish off. So I got into law school. I didn't really have a grand design. And, and as I say to people of lawyers, generally 50-50 of those who day one law school know exactly what they want to do and 30 years later, that's what they're doing versus the other 50% thinking they want to do X and they end up doing something completely different. In my case, I was focusing on, on tax and business law programs. Uh, the university then, as is now, is much broader focused on on a theme of access to justice and other matters as opposed to pure business law, but took a lot of the business law. And even during articling for a little bit, I figured during articling so much for the business and being an accountant. And I got an articling job. And even at that point in time, I was thinking tax. And again, as I said, 
things change and one thing leads to another as often in life. And with one file as a young, keen articling student, really an IP, what was an IPO of a finance company got really, as a law partner of mine uses the expression jazz by this whole securities law stuff. And in terms of a turning point from thinking I'd be an accountant with a legal background to a tax lawyer to then, well, this security stuff is pretty cool. Uh, as a young articling student, that was the moment. And hey, 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 was it literally that that first file that changed the course of your uh, your life? It, it was. I had started in in June, around this time of year, like early June, as an articling student. My first rotation was doing tax work, which I really didn't like, and was involved over the summer on, in essence, a constitutional law matter on figuring out whether a piece of pipeline was a federal jurisdiction or an Ontario jurisdiction for a piece of pipe in Welland, Ontario, and spent two weeks at a hearing at the National Energy Board in in Ottawa. But as I was leaving for that, again, that moment, uh, then young partner uh, who I'm still friends with and truly a mentor uh, of mine through all these years, found me in the library one night late and threw a punch of papers on my desk. And he says, I know you're coming into the securities group uh, next month. Go read this stuff and then we'll talk about it later. That was the moment. Do you remember the deal? Do you remember what, what I showed sure. it, was? it was? I have a deal toy from it here even. <laughs> I'm going to find if I can. I'm, I know I'm off camera here. That's what, uh, you're still there. Don't worry about it. And I cannot. Anyway, it was a deal for a company called, can't find it called the International Pagirian Corporation, or IPG, which was a predecessor within what is now uh, Brookfield. It was part of, it was wound up with He's and and done and formed by a financier named Chris Ondaatje, who was the brother of Michael Ondaatje, the, the Canadian writer. And that was the deal. And it was 1986. And, and I do also remember the closing dinner of that event would have been in September, October, of 1986, and it was Beaujolais Nouveau night. And here's a kid from Windsor. I don't know what Beaujolais Nouveau is, but it tastes a lot like grape juice to me. And <laughs> and I was just so sick after that closing dinner night. And I walked into my the partner's office the next morning, a guy named Stephen Coxford. And I said, Steve, if this is what it takes to be a corporate lawyer, I just can't do it. It was just, it was a... a times have changed now, Jay. You know, you know how to uh, handle those events now, I assume. Exactly. What, what do I know? Again, a kid from Windsor, you're drinking and somebody comes through and all the time is, is putting some more wine in your glass. And you got so the, those are the dangerous nights when you can't turn how many cups you can. Exactly. There's, there's the lesson. There's... <laughs> So, so, Jay, I want to take a step back for a second, and then we'll come yeah. back and continue the story. I mean, you know, it sounds like you, you know, you were an overachiever. You talk about having the lowest LSAT score, fine, but you still did the LSAT and gone to law school. You said your father was a lawyer. What was it about your upbringing? I mean, you, and, and you also mentioned that your father didn't really push you into law. Yeah. So, 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 what was it that they did to influence what ultimately turned out to be your life? Uh, if you could sit back and, and you know reflect on that now, what were the tools that they used effectively and maybe ineffectively to help you along your course? Well, so I guess I would say, and the best thing they did for me was to send me to summer camp. 
I'm exaggerating a little bit. I don't think my parents would like to hear that's the best thing they did for me, but they'd sent me to summer camp. And as I think back, as I often do, of early days and as we get socialized with family, with friends and so on, I, I grew up as a middle-class kid in, in Windsor, went to high school. I drive a car now, still a 1999 Camaro. Why? Because it's the car that I never had in high school. That's who I am. But I went to summer camp. And I went to a summer camp called Camp Solalim, which is part of the Canadian Young Judea group of camps in Sudbury. And the slogan of that camp in Hebrew is Hadracha Bedugma, in English meaning quite literally leadership by example. And again, if there's one thing that when I think back on of as it's evolved through practice, I hope my personal life and uh, with my own kids and educating them with relationships, but professionally as well, that notion of of leadership by example. Other people can say it other ways. You got to you got to talk the talk. You, you got to do it. And that's what was inculcated in me pretty early on. So this would have been when I was 14 years old going to this camp and that kind of that notion of the importance of doing it and of taking things at the appropriate time seriously. I still you know, like to and continue to like to have a good time, but to have to take what needs to be taken seriously and lead people. And we have in everything we do, I say it not jokingly, it's like a class project. Life is a big class project. And there are people in classes that they they hear a teacher or professor say, we got a group project for you and you groan. But that's what we do. And it takes leadership. It takes time and effort. And that's what was inculcated in me, I think, as growing up as a kid in Windsor. The podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA because, as, as you, I think you know, I have a background in genetics and I've always been obsessed with the debate of nature versus nurture. And, and one of the topics I think about the most is, is that topic of leadership. And I ask myself, how much of that is just ingrained in you as, you know, in your DNA? I look back at my life and I was pretty much a born leader. I didn't have to try very hard to take charge of just always being someone who likes control, I, you know, all those kind of cliche uh, things. And, and of course, of course, the nurture side of it plays a huge role in how effectively you can use that skill set. But how, how much do you believe in that nature versus nurture uh, dynamic? And, you know, were you, did, were you born a leader? Were you developed into a leader or is it a combination of both? And if so, what's that split? It's a great question. And I, I, as you were talking, I was reminded of a moment when I was at a, another youth organization I was involved in retreat and sitting in an audience and somebody was talking about leadership and here are the things, how kind of how to be a leader. So on. I remember, again, I, I, I couldn't have been more than 15, 16 years old and spoke to the guy after. And I, I where I was coming, he, he was kind of suggesting anyone can be a leader. And I, I pushed him on that even as a 15 year old. I don't think that's the case. I, I often think of things along a spectrum. There's, you know, on, on two ends of a spectrum are two points, but there's a whole bunch in the middle. And I come down to, I think you need something. I think what, whether that is, as, as in your background, DNA, there needs to be something there of ideas, of a way of naturally thinking and looking at things to be a leader. And that can easily go to waste in a person without the opportunities, without the education, without what we would call uh, uh, today mentoring or sponsorship. 
you need something, but you need the coaching and you need the outlet, the time, the conditioning, the training to truly take those raw skills and become a leader, I believe. So you need both. I've never really thought what percentage is what, but you have to have something seated in you and you got to work on it. You just can't take it for granted. Let's jump onto that mentoring statement you just made. Yeah. Um, because I'm a massive believer that uh, mentoring has been a huge, huge reason for you know my success in my career. Yeah. Uh, and you, you mentioned it actually more than once in this conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, first off, what I want to ask is, is why is it so important? And second is for those young entrepreneurs that are listening to you right now, how do you go about finding a mentor? I mean, people talk about this all the time. But this isn't just an easy thing to go say, okay, well, I'm going to go get a mentor and this is who I'm choosing. Um, So maybe just talk about those two things. Sure. So I I have been fortunate, I believe, through my career to have been mentored. I never thought about it truly formally, although I guess it was pretty formal at certain stages by a number of people at different stages of my career. And I can look back and I, again, been truly blessed with probably five or six mentors over now. 30 years of doing this from school. And if I thought of school, there'd be a bunch more. So I think kind of like the idea of leadership, a mentorship relationship or a sponsor relationship, there has to be a natural component to it. There has to be some natural affinity relationship for the two people to want to work together. And it is a two-way street. And you're right, you just don't go down the road and look for a mentor. In an organizational setting, it's probably somebody your senior probably somebody who's doing something similar to what you are doing, naturally working together, and that relationship evolves. I don't think anyone has ever really said to me specifically, I'm going to be your mentor now, as opposed to looking at it in hindsight, that, well, that's exactly what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And and it, it is a two-way street that as the as the protege, you're, you got to work at it. You, you just can't, it's not a passive thing to sit there as the the young student and just absorb as opposed to putting in the time and the hours and the work. And a lot of that is uh, kind of notions of of remembering and protecting the mentor as well. And that that's that's the expectations of a mentor. Like an easy one to me, again, back to to Stephen Coxford, who uh, taught me through how to go to a closing dinner. Again, Steve got into his office at seven thirty in the morning. And I would, as a young articling student, come in, and it wasn't the voicemail phones of today, but you could see on the screen of the phone who called you. And it didn't take me too many days to figure out when he was looking for me at 728 in the morning, because I could see his name. Yeah, if I want to do this, I think I should be getting in at 730 in the morning as well, which I still do to this day. And it's that ex- it's setting expectations. It's making expectations clear. And the inverse meeting the expectations of the mentor. So I said a lot of things in there. I think it's a at its root, it has to be a natural relationship. It's one that evolves. It's not forever. Life goes in stages as do these things. And it's responsibility. If somebody is going to mentor you, they need to see in the protege your desire, your ability, your uh, commitment to the relationship with, with that. And other things someone who's younger can do to to get like to put themselves in a position where a mentor would be attracted to them. I mean, outside of like just 
you know, being someone that goes above and beyond and, and taking initiative, like, are there certain tactical things that you recommend that they do to put themselves in that position to potentially attract that, that sort of relationship? It's a great question. I'm reminded of a little anecdote, kind of the other way as you said that. When I was a managing partner, I went to an evening of an open house where we had students from the different law schools come in to learn about the firm. And I'm standing, I might have, I might have had 30 seconds of, an, of a hello to the, to the group, and I'm standing and it's cocktails and, uh, and hors d'oeuvres, and, and some young student comes to me and shake, wants to shake my hand, and he said to me, I'd like to be the managing partner of this firm someday. And not the right way to go around finding a mentor. Uh, a, little <laughs> a little too much. So dial that back. It's not, and again, here's a person I don't know, let alone hasn't haven't worked with. And I, I often do get calls from people looking for help, advice, assistance, which I probably go overboard in doing sometimes. But that one just kind of struck me the wrong way of, trying to get something from me that they'd like to have my job in 25 years. I think at the root, it's good work begets more good work. And you understand the expectations of that mentor, that sponsor, and you do that. And I think it's then appropriately open to the protege to say, look, you know, I've enjoyed working with you. I really like this kind of stuff. I'm really committed to this. I, I'd like I'd like to do more. What that more is, I don't know. But I, I, I think at a point in time, you have to communicate it of of what and 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 then have have that discussion of expectations and again going both ways. Well, but but again, it should it should be natural. It should instance. be natural, and because you can't push it at its root, it has to be a natural, organic, developed relationship. And I hope to think I've been a mentor at any number of people over the years, some more successfully than others, and some leave and you never hear from them again as well. And so. So as a young protege, you got to keep that in mind. You're, you're not the first person at the dance here. There's been a series of people already, and some have done great and some have disappointed, and it all comes in that natural relationship. I want to go back to the point you made about you know learning very quickly that you should come in at 7.30 and it's a pattern of behavior that you still do today. Yeah. I'm a massive believer in momentum and I've spoken about this in the past. I think getting started on something is actually quite difficult. Yeah. But continuing once you've built a good habit is actually quite easy. Yeah. How much of your life is built on that good habit creation and that momentum, yeah. that positive momentum, you know, versus not, right? I mean, yeah. are you a creature of habit? Do you have certain yeah. things that you do? I mean, I know that I've seen your uh, your daily binder. I mean, it's ridiculously yeah. impressive. Yeah. But maybe you could speak about that. But, well, but more I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just looking at my bookshelf here. And uh, as you say that, one of the best books I've ever read is this one called The Power of Habit, which uh, you're smiling and uh, Duick did a great job in this. And he's written a couple of other books. We are human beings, I think, creatures of habit. We go to the, there might be a thousand restaurants in Toronto, usually open. We'll go to five. 100%. Right? <laughs> right? We'll go to five. We drive this down to, to our office the same way. We, we are creatures of habit and you're the that's your area of DNA. I think that's just ingrained in us with as a survival tool that we're only 10 generations out of the caves and we knew the safe way to go or else we were going to be eaten or we were going to get in a fight with the, the villagers next door. So I, I am a big believer in habit and everybody's habits can be different and you got to find what works for you. But I know even during you know, one of the things during this uh, social experiment that we're in right now with COVID, 
I figured early on this was not going to go away in two weeks. And from a survival perspective and doing what is expected of me, I better be in the same type of habits that I was before. And so that included uh, quite clearly getting up early, getting and doing exercise, because if in my world, if I'm not doing something by six and six is now probably switched to seven, but if I'm not doing something by seven, it doesn't happen for the day. It's then actually taking a shower and having breakfast and then putting clothes on as opposed to sweatpants and coming down and working. And some days are busier than others and we have video conference calls, but this is work. So it's sticking to a timetable, a habit that works for you and you have to find what works for you. I can't, I couldn't now think of switching as an example and, and doing some sport at, in the evening as opposed to the morning now. That's just part of an ingrained habit and Dewey talks about it uh, in his book of, it takes time to build and develop a habit, but then it's, it's, it, it does become second nature. And so even when I'm waddling outside, it, it's far too slow to be referred to as a run or a jog, but I will go the same route every time. So I don't have to think about it. I'm not even thinking of where I'm going. I know exactly where I am. I don't listen to music when I run because for me, that's thinking time. That's the time to prepare for a meeting, prepare remarks for a speech I might be giving, think a legal issue through, a business issue, a business problem through, and use that time. And that's part of my habit. And when I find I'm off habit, you feel it. You feel it psychologically and physiologically, and you just can't perform the same way. So I'm a big believer. People need to find their habits and get into them and stay in them significantly, including the exercise, including the eating. I put it all in the, the take care of yourself category. Do you have a methodology of incorporating new habits? Like, do you, do you actively think about, hey, this is actually something I want to incorporate into my life. This is how I'm going to do it. I don't really, and it's probably something I, I should give more time to. Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to do, you know, which which would have been good during this social experiment, is I, I had my list, no doubt, like you and everybody, of here are the books that I'm going to read. I've read 15 pages. Now, I've been busier, actually. This hasn't been a vacation and working pretty well continuously during the business days of the week. So I haven't found that time to get through those books and they're still sitting in the pile. Had I approached it as a habit, okay, I'm going to, for this half an hour a day or at night or before turning on Netflix, I'm going to read. And it takes two weeks or so to get into that habit and probably something I should have done. So I, I don't do it as much as I should. On that note, I mean, one of the things that I took away from the first time we ever met was the organization you had around your calendar and how you use your time. You know, it's funny, people who meet me, they think I'm a little bit chaotic because I'm super ADHD. And the reality is you'll never meet anyone who's more organized from a time side from, I have 400 folders in my Outlook. I know exactly where every email goes. It's totally counter to what you would think, but I'm a massive believer that I actually can't think properly without organization. I right. need to have no loose ends so that I can think for, for, for a topic. I'm sure that resonates with you, but yeah. what are your views on organization and why it's so important? To me, I, I couldn't imagine working any other way. And like you, I got a lot of files in, of, of Outlook emails. And I think today I'm, I'm in my outbox. I think there's 14 emails. That, that's it. It's been inculcated in me very early 
just to be organized. And that goes to living accommodate the, the house to living to, you know, not that I'm a cleanliness freak, but want a clean environment. I want things in everything should be in their proper place. And I, you know, if, if, you know, Janny or people that I work with, they, I will say five times a day, what's the timetable procedure checklist for that? And perhaps like you, I hate being late for things. I hate when other people are late for things. I just find it inconsiderate. And I I like to know what the procedure is. If it's when we're going to go meet these people for dinner tonight. Okay. Well, at what time and where? Because I I don't want to get there at seven and sit there cooling my heels till late because I got other stuff to do. And you know, it's so interesting. I've had this debate with other people and there's this idea that like artists and creatives are are less organized and it's more spontaneous. So there's this idea that like being too organized makes you less creative. And I completely disagree with that. I think that when I'm organized, I can be in my most creative state because I'm not worried about anything else. So it's totally different to how society tells you, you know, to be creative, you need to be this certain way. I, I agree. I agree. One, one, one of the best tips that I ever had, and I, I, I constantly think about it, is something, again, my mother would have said to me, and I yeah, I was probably 10 years old at the time. And I remember it, it was probably a Jewish high holiday day where we were going to synagogue or something, and there was schoolwork or something to be done. And her comment to me was, you have 20 minutes now. What what are the three things you can get off your plate now? And that kind of notion of get the little things done with now, take care of them now, so then you can focus on the big things. I still find myself defaulting to that. If I have my list of things to do or what's going to take my time, I want to get rid of the little ones first, apropos putting things in the proper email uh, file, get rid of those, return the calls, so then when I have the block of time, I can sit and think and use that time better. It's time management and people do it differently. And I agree, I, I, the frazzled artist, creative type who doesn't have wear a watch just just doesn't resonate with me or who I am at all. So let's let's switch gears back to, yep. you know, you, you now fell in love with securities law. You're moving obviously, in a, I mean, I know where you landed up, so you obviously moved in the right direction in your career. It, it seemed to work. Yeah, exactly. it seemed to work okay. So tell me about that, for better, for lack of a better word, that corporate climb, and and what are the moves that you made to, you know, first a become partner, uh, and, and then become, you know, ultimately managing partner, because that's the, the thing I really want to discuss with you, and the thing that I'm most fascinated with is 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 that managing partner stint, because unlike a CEO who has a hierarchy of individuals, you have one of the most interesting jobs in managing a whole bunch of partners. So I really want to spend some time right. there, but let's get there. So so talk me through, you know, kind of what steps you took in your career, why, you know, like maybe some of the, some of the things you look back at, you're like, these were good decisions I made to progress right. my, career, my career in the right path. So that, that piece, I, I started at a, at a firm, which was then called Smith Lions. It is now part of, it, it emerged after I had left. It's now part of the Gowlings Law Firm. So the early part of my career, and I became a partner at Smith Lyons, was in securities. And as you said early on in your comments, focused on, on mining. And the mining wasn't any great plan, to be honest, as opposed to falling in it, in that one of the, the most significant clients of the firm at the time was, uh, uh, was Ned Goodman. 
and Ned was a was then referred to as a mining promoter. Ned later was referred to in life as a financier, mining promoter to financier. But he was a mining promoter, and he had a bunch of mining companies. And as a junior securities lawyer, that's what you did at Smith Lyons. And I hated it. And I hated it because I, 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 nobody ever explained the industry to me. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't follow it. I didn't know what I was really doing from a business perspective. And if I, at that time, had I had the opportunity to work on a widget company, which I did, I much preferred that because I could go to the factory and I could see the input, the throughput, the output. You could understand the business and what your little piece of it was. But with the mining stuff, it was it was just didn't happen. But that changed with with a file that that I was given as a junior for a company that's now called Yamana Gold of a mining executive who engaged us to help take the company public and another mentor of mine. Uh, a guy named Tuki Angus in the Vancouver office told me he was coming in and, and asked me to sit with them and, and meet with them and take care of it, which I did. But the thing with Victor was, Victor Bradley was his name, he explained what he was doing with me. And, and there was kind of that moment, uh, again, a gotcha moment of, wow, that's kind of cool. And I'm looking for copper in, it was in southern Argentina, in Tierra del Fuego. But I'm looking for copper and this is what I want to do. And I was always intrigued by the what I think of still as the romantic side of mining, the Canadian bush, the voyager in a canoe, the glint of rock and the sun and and finding a gold mine, which is as many mines have been found, whether from a canoe like that or Voises Bay in Newfoundland. It was a glint by a helicopter operator, and he made note of it in the coordinates and went back and looked later and and found this huge nickel mine. That was a very romantic notion to me of the north and outside and the development of this country, but I couldn't tie it together. But I then went and with this took a course in it. I took a short course in, I called it mining for dummies. It was a mining course uh, given at the at U of T in the faculty lounge. It was very civilized and group of seven art on the walls and and wine and cheese. And, and somebody started explaining the mining business to me. And that was, again, the moment. And it evolved and one thing begets another and you get more and more of these clients. And that 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 led to an opportunity with Tukey Angus, a mentor, when he left Smith Lyons to Steichman Elliott, Vancouver, the opportunity for me to go join him and create a global mining group using Steichman Elliott as a platform. What year was that? That would have been 1997. And so Tukey went to Steichman Elliott, Vancouver. I could have gone to Vancouver had I wanted, but decided to stay in Toronto, joined the firm, which really, at joining Steichman Elliott as a partner, the only person I really knew in the firm was 3,000 miles away in another office. I didn't know anybody. I really didn't know anybody. And joined and just kind of started doing and developing this with a mentor, with Tukey Angus, who I still keep in touch with. And one thing leads to another and you get to know people and and the firm was was needless to say, things seemed to work out. I learned something from them and they learned something from me and was able to attract uh, other junior lawyers to this practice that while all of the big firms had had dabbled in, if you will, somebody always acted for Inco and Naranda, but there's only you know, 10 top 10 mining companies. And and we created something and created a group and started to get more work. So that evolved and, and coming back to it of the notions of leadership and leading by example and having to do the work. And, and then it was my turn to start developing those mentor-mentee relationships where I was the mentor. 
and any number of people that I've worked with on these matters who are now partners at the firm or have gone on to do other things in law, outside of law, I hope to have given back to them what I got from the early mentors in my in my career. So so you develop a track record and and before you know, we've got this group that got pretty well known, myself and others working very hard in Toronto and in Vancouver and, and in Sydney and the support of the firm. So how does that lead to managing partner? So that's a great question. And I say of things often, and, and we've had very few managing partners at the firm, and every firm is different. In Toronto, I was probably of the Toronto office, I think now the fourth managing partner ever of the Toronto office. As a partner, as doing the head of the mining group, I was asked to sit on the management committee of the firm. And I did that, it was a good five or six years of the management committee of the Toronto office. And in retrospect, the management committee of the Toronto office as envisioned or as as evolved at that time where Rod Barrett was the then managing partner of the office, it was really a training ground. It was school. It was going to school and learning, here's how the firm is run, as opposed to the other way of a bunch of managers and sitting in strategic planning with Rod as the managing partner. Rod had a very good idea and very good handle on where the firm should be going and was always looking and welcoming input and we would be there. But it was as much, it was more so him giving to this group of next generation partners, here's how the place is run. You think you know, you really don't know. Here's how it's run. And it was a fascinating time to sit and be around the table and you absorb and you learn. And like any group dynamic, there's people around that table that talk a lot. There's people that didn't talk at all. And certainly I wasn't talking every every moment. I, you know, when you have something to say, say it. But it evolves and you learn and you get an idea uh, of how the place is run. In terms of that next level, Rod was looking to retire and we needed to we needed to have then a a process for um, to come up with Rod's successor. Rod had Rod had done this. My term was six years. Rod did this probably for ten or twelve years. When you were looking for that new successor, yeah. did you have it in your mind right then that you wanted to go for it, or is this something you have to like warm up to the idea? Yeah. Absolutely, no idea in my mind then to do it, and it, it's kind of. You could be Machiavellian about it, as the old saying goes. If you if you want to be the the chair of the United Nations, the last thing you do is say you want the job. But I wasn't even really thinking about the job, as opposed to I think through hard work, through leadership by example, through working it across different people of the firm. I was one of a number of people shortlisted by a committee to be considered by the partners at large to be the next managing partner. My approach to it wasn't really to lobby for the job. It wasn't to run an, a campaign for the job. And the other candidate, the, the other then candidates would have done no doubt a great job. And there, we all get along, we're all friends. And it was a moment in time. And it was the committee looking for something of the ability of the candidate to continue to have a strong practice and, and continue to work on their practice, as well as, and please do this, uh, other job. That decision at the end of the day was up to my partners to make, as opposed to me going around and lobbying. But, but you could have said no, I, I assume. I could have said no. And when I was approached, would I be interested? 
I had only really started thinking about it then. Okay, this this is an opportunity. This is a step. This is I've got some skills. There's no doubt. Some uh, there's going to be some bumps in the road, no doubt. But I warmed up to the idea. It's not that I went out and looked for the opportunity, as opposed to the people asking, "Would would you be interested?" So 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 now you you become managing partner, and you had a six year stint. And yeah, uh, you know, I, I know I promised an hour. I have ten minutes left with you. What are the biggest lessons you learned about leadership in that role? Because like I said, it's got to be one of the more unique leadership roles that kind of exist, you know, in in business, right? I mean, it's it's, it's a very unique thing. It's it, like I said, a traditional kind of corporation yeah. that isn't set up as a partnership um, with a clear kind of CEO and hierarchy. Yeah. It is a unique thing. And, and people have done this, you know, studies, whoever they, they are, of you know running a professional firm whether it's an accounting firm law firm engineering firm a professional firm of partners is x times more difficult than being the ceo of a traditional structured company i'm not so sure i've never been a ceo of a traditionally structured company to say yeah that's true or not uh but it is it, it is certainly being in the position of the managing partner and again i was the managing partner of the toronto office each part each firm had or each office had its own managing partner and above that a chair but i was on the executive committee of the whole firm during those six years but you're a partner you're a partner amongst partners and you're being asked to do this job and being put in a position of of responsibility of as as bill braithwaite the 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 chair of the firm during my tenure always said and don't screw it up you're there holding on to this asset that you want to give leave in a better place than you found it and it was in a pretty good place when i found it believe me and working with people as equals and so it comes back in my mind to the thing i learned the first day at camp solalim of of leadership by example and everybody has different management leadership styles but it's leadership by example that you're prepared to do what you say it was important for me again i i kind of proudly say maybe my partners would say it should have gotten more my compensation went down as managing partner, not up. And when decisions were had to be made about compensation for things, as an example, again, yeah, I hope to think that I led by example of of when things when when things went down, as opposed to thinking about what's in it for me. So it's leadership by example. It's buy-in. It's especially in an organization like this of surrounding yourself with highly motivated, highly educated, bright people who bring their own lenses to any any issue, any challenge, many of whom have been doing it in their roles way longer than I had, and thinking quite specifically of, of Ann Ristick, who continues as the co-managing partner of the office. She was the co-managing partner with Rod Barrett, my, my predecessor. And Ann has this fantastic way about her and managing and has seen it all before. And so it would be silly not to rely, come to rely on knowledge like that. And the same with Jean McLeod, who, who is the, the, the COO of the firm and, and her touch on things and what she's seen. So I think it's very important to surround yourself with the people who can bring something to the table. I don't think there, there certainly weren't many, if any times I would have said, I hear what you're all saying, but I'm going to do this. It's not the organization we have, but you develop it, you evolve the, the theory. And then and then a huge piece of it is, especially in the role of a partner amongst partners, is the communication and the buy-in within the partnership. And that that takes time, it takes effort. And 
understanding that people are people. People want to be heard. People want to be listened to. People want to be talked to. So as opposed to an edict coming out of the sky, and you couldn't always do it, I would spend a lot of time, although I think my partners would have always said never enough time, but it was a lot of time, walking around door to door and having those discussions with partners one-on-one. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. Here's what I need from you. Uh, here's here's how you can help. Or or the difficult conversations, the very difficult conversations that times are very personal as well of this isn't the information you want to hear, the the what you want to hear, but this is what we're going to do. Do you remember the most controversial decision you had to make? It, look, it was certainly nothing like Jeff Singer and the management group today would have to deal with with COVID. That is for sure. Timing is everything in life. I think the decisions that we had to, that I I was involved in making were all primarily people decisions, I'll say that, of, of individual people at the firm and their role within the firm, short and, and long term. So they were one in a series of discussions of things like that, as opposed to a COVID type event that we were all into and managing people's expectations, managing people's not only expectations, my, well, my expectations of them or the firm's exp- expectations of them and communicating that. I would say as well as part of that, everybody everybody needs a coach. The president of the United States, the prime minister of Canada, they have coaches. Managing partners of law firms have coaches as well. And every CEO who I've talked to and we have these, I, when I have these discussions has their coach. I don't care who it is, but you need somebody because the one the one lesson that I learned very quickly, as I've shared with you before, Elon, it gets very lonely at the top. And it's sometimes you, you just can't, the buck does stop with you and you can't turn to somebody and it's you. To have that outside coach, at least to bounce things off of, is very helpful in that. But I use that now as part of my, of what I do in practice again, after managing partner, is to the CEO, I know how lonely it can be at the top yeah. CEO. And I'm not your investment banker, so you don't have to pay me a 5% commission, but I'm not your CFO either. And I'm here and I, I can help you. And, and a lot of what I'm doing is working with CEOs like that as their advisor, but on a broader, more holistic, strategic level, call it a coach if you want. Here's some things, similar things that the firm we had to go through. Here's something, you know, here are the, here are the three things you should be thinking about CEO. So I've, I've taken those experiences and and tried to kind of give back with it with my offering of professional services now. So the CEO listening right now is looking for you know that coach, which yeah. I know is a huge part of your practice now. How do they get a hold of you outside of LinkedIn? Well, the last time I looked, I'm I'm on the website of the firm. It, it's right there, and my my office number, my mobile number is on it, my email, and uh, that's the easiest way. So, so one last question before I yep. let you go, for those young, hungry, potential future executives or entrepreneurs yep. listening yep. to this right now, uh, you know, if there were a couple pieces of advice that you could give them as they as they start their career, yep. I know we touched on a few points. You, yep. you know, find find that mentor, um, yep. find good habits. What what what, is, what are the two so, or three points that you'd have? I'll, I'll, so, and I'm going to pull out a piece of paper in a second where I have that. And the backstory to what I'm about to say is every year for the past five or six years, I, I go down to the University of Windsor in February and I speak to the securities class. And the topic of my speech are the five building blocks to being a great lawyer. And 
I think the building blocks that I'm going to share with you are the five building blocks to being fill in the blank, whether it's a great lawyer, great accountant, great CEO, great parent. Here are the five things in my world that you need. And I wrote it down this morning. And I give this similar address to when I was the managing partner to the first day summer students and articling students when they would come in to share with them. So to me, mine are whatever you do, you got to be passionate about it. If you don't have the passion, go find something else to do where you do have the passion. You've got to learn your craft, which takes a lot of time. And another book on my shelf here is Outliers by uh, Gladwell. And he talks about you need 20,000 hours to become an expert, which when I did the math, isn't that far off what we would expect from associates to becoming a partner. So you got to learn your craft and you got to put in the hard work. It's not only about IQ, it's about EQ. It's about the ability to engage with others because life is a big group project and to be part of a team. And the last one I've added is, and we talked about it briefly, you got to take care of yourself. And to me, that's physical health, that's mental health, and that's spiritual health if that's important to you. But you got to take care of yourself. You got to put it in your regime. You got to find your habits to deal with that, including sleep, including putting your, your phone in another room so you're not looking at your emails when you get up. And again, fill in the blank, and you too can be a 30 year overnight success. <laughs> nothing, nothing trumps uh, experience and time. Jay, that's an eloquent way to end this. I, I, I really appreciate. Uh, your involvement in this uh, podcast. I learned a lot more about your story and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, from people listening. So so again, thank you very much. I appreciate My it. My pleasure. It was great. Great, Elon. Be well. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.